Okay, let's pray. Okay. Father, thank you for the time together. Thank you for uh, the end of a semester where we can reflect on what we've learned. We can consider how all that we've learned applies to real life in a sin-cursed world. And uh, we thank you for the break. We thank you that we can take the next couple months off of Wednesday night and uh, be with our family and our friends and our church family um, to rest and relax and get to know one another and serve each other. We pray for Jim and Carol's food, that it would strengthen their bodies. In your name we pray. Amen. And not put them to sleep. (laughs) All right. So much to Chris's chagrin, since you love big words, I have a final exam for you. Carol, you I think I nope. can go out there and nope. eat. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I, might, I might join you. <laughs> oh, no. This is going to be good. You know, this is kind of like bridal shower. Yeah. Like, hey, Chris, it's in front of me, and I just ignore it. <laughs> I'm going to cut this up for everybody. Don't take this too seriously. You're going to get to keep it. I'm not going to look at it. And we will go over it together. All right. Well, let's uh, discuss the quiz, not grade the quiz. Hopefully it at least spurred some thoughts on to give you an overview of the semester. Or just made you mad. So number one, God can be known fully or exhaustively, true or false. True or false? False. False. God is knowable, yet, big word, incomprehensible, right? So we said that he could be known accurately, but he cannot be known fully or exhaustively. So that was lesson one. Lesson two, we define God's triunity as there is one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each fully divine. Is that a true statement or a false statement? True. Some are saying false, some are saying true. Why, those of you that are saying true, why would you say it's true? So why would you say they're So that is that that statement is true, and that lesson was devoted to trying to uh, one introduce us to the three persons of the Triunity: Father, Son, and Spirit, because that's how God has revealed Himself, so that we can know Him. Um, But it, it is also a very clear evidence of God's incomprehensibility, right? Because how could we, as finite human beings, understand that? There is one God eternally existing in three persons, not uh, energies or forces, but three individual persons that each have can function separately, yet they're all equally God. I mean, that'll blow your mind. So, so it's true. Number two is true. Number three, the Old Testament portrays a God who enjoys punishing sin. While the New Testament pictures a God of grace and mercy, true or false? False. So what would, if you had to correct that statement, how would you correct that statement? 
Really? That's all the way you would correct it? So the the back table said um, that you would just take the word enjoys out. So God is a the Old Testament portrays a God who punishes sin, while the New Testament pictures a God of grace and mercy. Yeah, well, I, that's sin. what I'm. I'm giving you the opportunity to fix. He still it. punishes sin. I mean, last time I checked, like the Book of uh, Revelation is a pretty damning book. So, I mean, you still get this picture in the New Testament of a God who punishes sin. Was he? Was he? But you're saying he, what, he's not. He wasn't in the Old Testament. He's no, only merciful in the New Testament. Okay. So, it, can anyone remember how I tried to uh, like counteract the argument? Because this question is just an argument that is a common accusation leveled at biblical Christianity, right? It's well, how could you believe in a God who's you know so bipolar? In one testament, one half of the book, he's this nutty, you know, I just want to wipe everybody off the face of the earth and then the New Testament is this God of love and the person of Jesus, and I could trust in that God, but I can't trust in the God of the Old Testament so, how did I explain that God is not this bipolar God? How, well what did I focus on? What? Well, what's that? Right? That he is a in the Old Testament a promise making God, and in the New Testament he's a promise keeping God. Now, obviously, he makes promises in the Old Testament, and he begins at that moment to keep those promises. Right? So it's a, uh, a progressive fulfillment of those promises. It's not necessarily just an instantaneous in every promise, right? Um, but there is a progressive unfolding of I'm keeping the promises that I make. But the overall overarching promise uh, emphasis in the Old Testament is he's making promises. He makes this initial promise in Genesis 3.15 and then he gives the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and the new covenant and even before or right after the Abrahamic he gives the Mosaic. Right? So there's all these promises, covenants that he's making. And then we see in the New Testament that Jesus is the fulfillment he is the yes to all of God's promises. So in some unique way, Jesus is the culmination and the fulfillment um, of all of God's promises. Every every one of them. I don't understand that exactly how that works, but that's what the Bible says. So I'll just have to figure out how that works. Another so thing. what was the answer? False. <laughs> so I said false early, right? Yes, it's false. Four, God answers to no one. There's no one higher than him that he must give an account to. True. And in what attribute of God's character would this particular statement fall under? And coupled with the sovereignty it was the next quality that we looked at holiness holiness right because we said that um, he has his holiness I'm giving you an answer but it's majestic transcendence and moral purity majestic transcendence that is he is over everything he answers to no one there's no one higher than he it also fits with the sovereignty number five 
all of God's fatherly activity over his children can be described as good. Or, and what I mean by that is not just it's like nice. I mean it's good in that it's for the benefit of his children. Every last thing. Even when it seems like this is a royal mess. All of God's fatherly activity, even as we saw in Hebrews chapter 12, I believe, when God disciplines those he loves. His discipline is an act of love because it is seeking the good of that person even when it doesn't feel good. Because the text even clearly says that like, you need to endure this because it's not pleasant. Number six, according to the parable of the prodigal son, and we spent a long time in one of our lessons <coughs> thinking about that. I remember because I was actually sitting down that time. And God's, and we would say God's fatherly love is forgiving, gracious, merciful, and joyful. Is that true or false? True. Absolutely true, right? Because that father that is peering out that screen door, right, looking for his son to return home, that is a picture of our Heavenly Father who is longing for his lost to come home. And that is a picture of a forgiving, a gracious, a merciful, and a very joyful, exuberant Father. And we tied that to Zephaniah 3.17, I believe it was, where that text, Zephaniah says that God will rejoice over us with loud singing which is a pretty amazing thought to think of the voice of God rejoicing over his children coming to him. Then last true false question, number seven, believers love God by living for his glory, which is God's greatest good. True. True. See, this isn't that hard. (laughs) It might get a little bit more difficult now because now you have to read my mind. (laughs) in the blanks and you know that my mind based on the questions that I ask you in class is always difficult to make sense of so number 8 Genesis 3.15 contains the seeds yes (laughs) you've learned something I have done something right this semester (laughs) amazing seed promise and who is the seed just so we don't think that it's just some promise name the seed promise Jesus. Jesus it's the coming redeemer Number nine, not too tricky. Mm-hmm. Our God is sovereign. That means He is in complete control of everything. In complete control of everything. Number ten, our God is holy. holy. That means He is set apart from His creation and majestic character or transcendence. He's above everything, and in His moral purity, He is perfect. There is no defilement or imperfection or even mistake, accident in him. Now this one will be interesting. Because there are a lot of blanks. Love is an act of the will. So it's a decision accompanied by emotion, not led by, that leads to 
Good. So it's active, not passive, on behalf of its object. It's for the good of the one love. So it's will, emotion, and action. Compassion emotion. No. You could put passion, but not compassion. Feelings would work. Feelings would be an acceptable option for the second blank. I would even say maybe passion would kind of slide in there, but not compassion. Because the emphasis in the second blank is... Uh, the feelings uh, side of it as opposed to a decision because as we will see (coughs) if love is led by feeling well then we're not going to love anybody or anything or our love is going to just bounce from the person who makes us feel the best and it's never going to be a loyal love because our feelings are never loyal other than to ourselves and that's even suspect sometimes. So, sorry, Dad. Sorry. Number 12, the Holy Spirit does what to believers? And dwells is incorrect. Try again. Regenerates. Regenerates. The Holy Spirit regenerates believers. That means, that's why I have like the, the triple line there that now I'm explaining. I believe it's called an M-dash, maybe, or an N-dash, I can't remember. But he gives spiritual life to the spiritual dead, enabling them to love God. That's not indwelling, that's regeneration. Oh, that's the point of regeneration. According to what you said. So at the point that Christ, God, the Holy Spirit regenerates people, but they are does not he, believers. But he doesn't regenerate unbelievers, right? I mean, yeah, he, he has to regenerate unbelievers, right. according to what you said. But, a, but so, you as a believer had to be regenerated at some point not, in time, right? But it's before, regeneration is before. So tell me how indwelling would fit with the second half of that statement, though. Because that's what he does. He I'll give people that believe but, but you're not answering my question he gives spiritual life to the spiritual dead enabling them to love God has nothing to do with indwelling but then then your question is wrong you can't be believers I, d- I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that because I, <laughs> I we all got it right because I'll give that one to you because I was I always did give at least one on all my tests but because he, is it not a fact that he indwells believers he does okay. indwell believe. He only indwells believers. Okay. Look at Linda. We got it right, Linda. <laughs> so I'll give that one to you. If, if, only if you were confused by the believers, unbelievers. Yeah, yeah, that was it. <laughs> but that makes you feel better. But you have to go put your head on the pillow tonight. Be, be good with that. So number thirteen. How would you sum up? The overall storyline of scripture, and this is uh, this is obviously really hard to do if you give good thought to it, because it has to somewhat be. I mean, it has to be comprehensive enough to kind of include. And don't worry, theologians write whole books on it. So. I said God created man, sin, God redeemed. It really was very succinct. That's good. I mean, I like that. Which short and sweet. I like that. Yeah. That's me. As opposed to the wordy one. You should see mine. It's three lines long. <laughs> 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 All right. Go for it. Linda, go for it. Ladies first. God's, God's interaction with his creation, creation, loving us so much, he sent his son to restore our relationship with him. I like hearing that restore relationship because that's a that, to me, is a big theme in Scripture. So, I like that you caught that it's, it's somewhere along the line. 
Anyone else? Be willing to read theirs? Pete, what'd you have? <laughs> I started off with a two-word or just to be a little sarcastic, maybe. <laughs> His story. But, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's, I, I put God's plan uh, for redemption of sinful man. Okay. Good. Dad, what were you... I said it was uh, glimpses of the eternal plan of God are revealed from creation to the eternal state. I didn't get into the detail of sin. Okay. <clears throat> Anyone else care to... Lest I put you on on trial? The creation fall and redemption. Okay. <laughs> Sally, would you be willing to share? Well, I, I was totally off on this. Remember last week you said something about the Cliffs Notes scripture? Yes. And I put down love God and others. Well, that'd be a Cliffs Notes of the ethic of scripture. But that's, I mean, but that's okay. But that's good practical advice that we all need. So, <laughs> so I, I, here's what I put in my wordiness, because I was trying to be somewhat comprehensive, yet I still don't feel like I got it. So, in the face of man's sinful rebellion, God in His grace promised to send a Redeemer to restore the broken relationship man's sin has caused, becoming a father to those who repent and believe. I don't know. So it's obviously wordy, just to annoy a couple people in here. Number 14, what are the two purposes for which God is in complete control of everything? His glory and our good. So everything that happens in life is for His glory and our good, uh, which is hard to get our our minds around. But that's the truth. Number 15, in class we discussed five ways in which Jesus enables our relationship with God the Father. List, and I should have said briefly explain one. How does Jesus facilitate or enable our relationship with God the Father? Uh, that would fall under intercession. So he revealed God to us. Okay, he manifested God to us or revealed God to us. He represented God. That'd be like a Colossians one uh, or was it First Corinthians something something where it says. Uh, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I don't remember where that is, but it's in one of the Corinthians. Uh, what else? He was, um, I don't know if this um, along these lines, but propitiation. He satisfied the wrath of God for us. That's it. That. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would, I mean that, that would be along the lines of, like, reconciliation. So we have this big, massive gulf between us and God because he's holy and we're sinful. And so we have to have some sort of reconciliation and propitiation, which is God uh, satisfying God, uh, with, which is Christ satisfying God's wrath through his death, is a means of that reconciliation to happen. So we have representation, reconciliation, intercession. He's our example. Okay. I had, the other two I had were incarnation. So he he comes and he lives a life as man. So that we, so we have a God who is sympathetic or can empathize with us, right? 
Because how can a God... How can we have a relationship with a God who's so far off, who's not living in this sin-cursed world with us? Well, He has. And then consummation, uh, it is God being a faithful God. He is proving His faithfulness through... Uh, he, he is a, he's a God who keeps His promises. And He has demonstrated to us that He's a faithful God, a trustworthy God that we can then go to with... Uh, you know, a, a friend of mine just the other day, I mean, I don't want to get into personal testimony and too in deep, but last couple of weeks I've really been struggling spiritually and, uh, and a friend of mine, it was almost like I was angry with God at some things and a friend of mine just said, dude, pray to God and complain to him. Like, just complain. I mean, David could, could do that. Why can't you just Tell him your complaints, but don't just be silent and not complain. Complain to him. And and we can do that because he has a trustworthy ear. Right? I mean, I think if you stay in an eternal state of complaint, then you've got problems. But I think we all have problems, and we do see... A pattern in scripture of David. I'm not trying to be unsympathetic. I, I mean, I've been living it. So, you know, I, I mean, I think that the reality is, is that we're all sin cursed people living in a sin cursed world. And even though we might be redeemed and have the Holy Spirit of God living in us, I mean, this is still a frustrating place to live. And our struggle with sin is still really frustrating and depressing and can get us turned all upside down and get a, our eyes and vision being off of Christ and I, and especially when God gives us the pattern in the Psalms of these lament Psalms like God will you crush my enemies for going to say how long are you going to let this happen you know I mean if David can say that I mean why can't we say you know stink why don't you change this I mean I guess I think of it as like questioning my parents you didn't do that? Well, yeah, but I got trouble and I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but, but see, that's... But that, that's where I say it. it are, you, are you persisting in that? No, you know? but... Well, I guess that's... I mean, God is, God is a God that to, it ought to be feared. But God is not only a God that is to be feared. God is a... I mean, because He is to be revered. It, it, it's... It's not entirely like a perfect human analogy, but I mean, when you're a kid, you fear your dad because he can spank you, but you also love your dad and want to relate to him. And, you know, but sometimes you want to complain about him because he doesn't do things consistently or you don't like the way he has parented you. Well, God always does things consistently and right, but we still don't like it. <laughs> you know? I mean, I don't like the trials that God's given me. You don't like the trials God's given you. And sometimes, I mean, God has made an allowance and, and given us access to be able to complain to him. Ultimately, our... our the re, Let me... Uh, how, uh, it's so hard, but... Uh, the reason you're complaining is because you trust God and your circumstances aren't lining up to your trust in God. 
as opposed to someone who doesn't actually trust God and I'm going to like totally blow people's minds or I'm going to be completely nonsensical <laughs> as opposed to someone who doesn't trust God and complains that uh, like basically is complaining and accusing God mm-hmm. like so how, how, I don't want to get myself in a place because I can't think fast enough but because I've thought through this before but I don't think I can articulate it clearly but um So if you have a trial that comes into your life that you really, really don't like, there's there's either the faith option or the lack of faith option. You walk through it in faith, and you might not like it, but you're going to walk through it, and the very reason that you don't like it and it doesn't feel good and, and you complain is because you're saying, but God, I believe that you're good. You say your word, in your word, that you are this. But this is happening. And because you have a belief in God, you're actually saying, this doesn't, this doesn't jive. But at the end, the person who has faith ultimately still keeps their trust in God and, and their perception or interpretation of all of those circumstances eventually line up in, in, in a faithfulness to God, in our trust in God. But then you have the other perspective where that same circumstance enters your life and you don't trust God and so then there's a complaint about God against God and that ultimately leads to well it allows that circumstance to cripple your trust in God to the place where, well, God, you said you were good, and this circumstance isn't good, so you must not be good. And in the end, that's devastating, right? Because your faith is, like, super wonky on some crazy rocky road. And so... If you're complaining on this end and it's leading to a lack of faith in God, I mean, you gotta you got to figure that out and do some serious wrestling. On this side, you have faith in God, and the very reason why you're sitting there scratching your head and complaining to God is because you actually do trust God. You're just saying, well, God, I don't understand. So I don't necessarily know. I don't necessarily, I don't know if I would agree that it's just, well, I have this lack of faith if I'm complaining to God might be because you actually do have faith in God. So it's, I don't think that made sense to anybody but myself. And it, I'm not sure it even made sense, but it does make sense in my head, kind of. So, And I don't want to hear if it didn't. <laughs> so, uh, so 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11, how does that contribute to our understanding of God's holiness and his expectation that we grow in holiness? Simply put, when you read that text and it talks about um, someone who does not, so the, it starts out, make every effort to add to your faith. And then there's this chain of virtues. And and then it says, if you refuse or if you do not do this, if you do not make every effort to add to your faith, to grow in holiness, to grow in godliness, then you are rendered 
ineffective and unuseful, essentially, uh, and, and it calls you nearsighted and blind. Now, whether that's a believer or unbeliever, I don't know, and I don't really care uh, for our conversation here, because there's a debate on that, and you can read the commentaries, and it doesn't. But it doesn't matter. The reality is, is that make every effort, make every effort, because the the if you don't make every effort, there's devastating consequences. You 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 become so short-sighted, near-sighted, that the only thing that you can see is the tree right in front of your face. You can't see the big picture. All you can see is self, and, and you get mired and, and, and stuck in this rut of self, and, and you don't see the big picture of, of God's amazing plan. And so we must be eternally have an eternal perspective, putting things soberly in their place, not being like this, nearsighted, just looking at our own own lives, our own selves, just be focusing focusing on that. So we must make every effort. And, and I think that is, when we make every effort, we are rendered then effective and useful in the work of God. So, tonight's lesson which really I wasn't I didn't have a lesson it was just I wanted to just throw one thought out there a couple texts for you to consider I'm going to read a, a more lengthy text and it's on loving people so Sally in your question that you were answering you put it right the new the ethic of scripture can be summarized as Cliff's notes in love God and love others if you filter everything that you do everything that you say everything you think everything through that lens those two lenses you will be an obedient and pleasing child of God so loving people and what 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 somewhat troubles me is that I can I can say um I, for instance, Jim is a good friend of mine, so I could say, well, I love Jim. Well, he might be easy to love, right? Because I, he and I like golf. We like going and eating food together at lunch. We like to talk about who knows what. And, and we, we, we just naturally get along. Well, that's easy. But, but the rub comes in is, I sometimes wonder, is that even real love when it's easy? Because real, and maybe it is, maybe I'm being too hard, but I think real love is proven when when that person is unlovely. When that person looks like the scum of the earth, when that person has wronged you, when the person has sinned against you, when the person has turned their back on you, when the person has been whatever. You know, that is when the rubber meets the road. When you aren't being loved in return. Because what what is love if if for Jim and my friendship with him, what is love when, you know, hey, we go golfing together and we have a good time and you know, we eat Olga's like once a week, you know? <laughs> and we just kill each other with snackers and that feta 
spinach soup or whatever. I mean, it's just to die for, right? I swear there's potatoes in there too. <laughs> you know, and so we, we can we can enjoy that, but what happens when I start, you know, just... I start talking smack about Jim behind his back or something, or, you know, I kick him in the shin because he hit me with a golf ball, you know, because he shanked his drive, which is probably very realistic. You know, not not true. You know, but how does... Where does that? How does that work? It, it, true love really is only proved and most evident in those really crappy situations of life. And I mean, let me just read a couple texts to you that I think would support that. Romans twelve fourteen seventeen and twenty one. It says, "Bless those who persecute you." In other words, call down God's blessing on those who are making your life miserable. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Man, that is hard. Matthew five forty three through 48 And here's what Jesus says about this exact thing that I'm trying to very poorly explain with Jim. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't, do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I just sit there and think, that's that's real love. Right? Because I can love the, the, the person that I get along with. I can love the easy person. But where is my love most uh, clearly and visibly demonstrated? It's when I love those who from my vantage point don't deserve it. My enemies, those who persecute me. And he says, so that, verse 45, he's not saying so you can earn your salvation. It's more a connection of proof. Those who love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that, that is the way, that is a sign of life. It is so that it is the proof that you are the sons of the Father who is in heaven. Because, right, when we are born of God, we are sons and daughters of God. We take his name, we take his DNA, we take his character, and we start living out that character because it is our character. We have God living in us in the Spirit who is living through us, demonstrating the character of our God. So, true love loves others unconditionally. True love loves others unconditionally. And yes, that is impossible on this side of heaven, but that is the, that is the ideal love, isn't it? Because God's love for us was unconditional. But I would say to love others unconditionally. And I'm thinking those who are our pain, the, the, the pains in our butts. To love those who are unlovely unconditionally, our love must be fueled by God's love for us and our love for Him. Our love for others must be fueled by God's love for us and our love for Him. So in order to love in this impossible way that God calls us to love, to love 
the unlovely, to love those with an unconditional love. The only way we can do that is if we, if our love for others is fueled by God's love for us, or motivated, you could say, by God's love for us, and our love for Him. It can't just be, I reflect on God's love for me, and then I wait and kind of passively till I get warm and fuzzy feelings for Him, and then I go and I obey. It is... We consider the love that God has lavished on us, that we would be called children of God, but then we also in turn love Him. And our love is doing what is in His best interest, what is His greatest good, which is His glory, which is our obedience. So even in the face of people who just rub us the wrong way and ill-treat us, we love. We do what is in their best interest, even when we don't really feel like it. That's how we can live or love unconditionally the unlovely. Let me read 1 John 4 and then we'll be done. 1 John 4, verses 7 through 21. And this text very clearly encapsulates what I'm trying to say. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are to be in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So let's go do it. Let's love God and demonstrate our love for God by loving others. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this semester that we could consider how we could grow in our relationship and love for you. May we, as we consider that you are knowable yet mind-bogglingly incomprehensive, that you are a sovereign and holy and loving God who has graciously promised that your seed would come to redeem us. And he has come and he is coming again. May we be moved and motivated to love you, to pursue your glory, 
in everything that we do, that we would make that hard right choice and not be swayed and, and ruled by our feelings, and that we would love others as a as an outgrowth, as a as an outpouring of our love for you. That we it would be an act of obedience, not just merely a feeling. Help us to love you and to love others. In your name we pray. Amen.